Hello and welcome to Retrieving the Social Sciences, a production of the Center for Social Science Scholarship. I'm your host, Ian Anson, Associate Professor of Political Science here at UMBC. On today's show, as always, we'll be hearing from UMBC faculty, students, visiting speakers, and community partners about the social science research they've been performing in recent times. Qualitative, quantitative, applied, empirical, normative, on Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. One of the true joys in life, at least in my humble opinion, is taking a kid to a baseball game. Kids barely watch the game, of course, unless they're really destined to become one of those baseball superfans. You know the type, I'm sure. But anyway, kids are generally in it for the food, the gimmicks between innings, singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, and, well, you know, just the pageantry of it all. My wife and I took our daughter to her very first baseball game last year, and I gotta say, it was a blast. She was, of course, way too young to appreciate the action, just around a year old, but we found that she was delighted most of all to engage in people-watching. If you did the math just now, you probably realized that our daughter was born in 2021, when COVID restrictions were still in full swing. By the time we felt comfortable taking her to the baseball game, it's possible she had only seen a few dozen different people in her whole life. So you can imagine the tiny thoughts running through her head. Who are all these people? What are they like? How are they different? How are they similar? What makes them do the things they do and think the things they think? You know, I love that notion because it speaks to the fact that we're all natural-born sociologists. Everyone who's ever engaged in a little people-watching has asked themselves similar questions. But how do we get the answers? That's where the modern field of sociology comes in. And to help us understand the approaches, tools, questions, and findings of this important field, today I'm delighted to bring you a show devoted to UMBC's Applied Sociology Master's Program. This program emphasizes the practical side of sociology and the acquisition of analytical skills to prepare students for employment in many professional settings, including public and private organizations involved in social research, social policy, and program development. We'll hear from R.B. Brower and Jayla Gray-Thomas, who are current students in the program. We'll also hear from alumni, including Faria Khalid, Research and Data Analyst within the United States House of Representatives Office of Diversity and Inclusion and Perry Gilchrist, a research assistant at Westat. Not only that, but we'll also hear from Dr. Brandy Wallace, associate professor in the UMBC Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Public Health, and Dr. Christine Mayer, associate professor of sociology and gerontology in the same department. We'll learn from each of these guests about the UMBC Applied Sociology Master's Program, its focus areas and its strengths, and the research happening there right now. Let's listen in. First, to my conversation with Drs. Wallace and Mayer. All right. Today, I have the absolute pleasure to welcome two guests to the podcast, both um, involved in the sociology master's program that we are talking about today. Uh, we have Dr. Brandy Wallace here and Dr. Christine Mayer. Um, to both of you, I'm really, really grateful for your time. Grateful that you're here to talk a little bit about this program. So thanks very much uh, for your thanks participation. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. 
Absolutely. So I want to jump right in, but obviously we're talking about this program a little bit in general, but I want to get to know you all as well. And I was wondering, maybe we'll just start with uh, Dr. Wallace, just to sort of flip a coin here. Uh, maybe tell us, first of all, just a little bit about what your area of research is in the discipline and what you've been working on uh, lately. All right. So um, I kind of started with um, doing research on um, quality of life in uh, senior housing settings. So assisted livings, uh, nursing homes, um, CCRC. So these continuing care retirement communities um, and really looking at the um, the uh, residents quality of care as well as the workers quality of care. Um, and then then kind of over time, my work shifted to um, really, you know, being interested in kind of general um, populace of older adults and looking at their um, chronic disease management strategies. Um, so still that healthcare uh, focus, um, but really looking at um, kind of the understanding of their diagnoses and how they manage um, strategies and in, in managing their their illnesses. Um, and then also still kind of keeping that um, healthcare worker focus, um, looking at uh, physicians um, and their quality of life. Um, and so my most recent project, um, I've been doing interviews with uh, black women um, in the physician workforce, uh, and really looking at their uh, educational uh, trajectory and uh, also career trajectory. So how they are, um, you know how they how they you know went from kind of medical school to now practicing and you know really looking at the the strategies for success um and well-being uh within that um population wow that's super interesting super important research obviously and i can't imagine how much more interesting and also maybe in some cases worrying uh it's been to study that kind of pipeline um in the sort of covid era that must be a dimension to this research that certainly is um perhaps eyebrow raising perhaps even maybe hair raising in certain respects right absolutely yeah yeah well thank you so much um so dr mayor if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about your current research yeah, well, similar to Dr. Wallace, I study uh, older adults and older populations. Um, my area of specialty in school was family relationships and global social change, so globalization and global comparative work. So uh, for, you know, earlier in my, um, over the last 10 years, I've looked at family relationships uh, and also neighborhood social environments, both in the United States and across different countries, looking at how do we promote, essentially, how does the promotion of a strong uh, social environment impact and promote health as a protective factor? But the key to this is that it's really variant, and it's not that every single person, of course, has the same sort of needs in this way. And there's a lot of cultural differences, a lot of regional differences, um, differences across rural urban areas, um, gender or sex, race, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic status. So thinking about how we can look at the social environment through like a contextualized lens to see, well, for these groups, we see that these things are particularly effective in promoting mental health or helping to buffer some of the negative effects of stress um, from the environment. So I've done a little bit of work with that in Baltimore City. We have some work where we're looking at the physical and the social neighborhood environments and cardiovascular health inequities by race, ethnicity in the city. Um, and then another part of my work that 
I've been doing for a little while is looking cross-nationally. So comparing across different global regions, um, looking at cultural differences across the entire globe. Um, one of the things that we're most interested in now is looking at some of the big demographic changes that are occurring. So fertility is declining across the globe in every single region of the globe and family relationships are changing. So people are adapting in different ways to create support systems, um, but we aren't necessarily measuring all of that and figuring out how they're adapting and figuring out what the needs and the gaps are. So if you are, for example, an older adult who doesn't have children in Denmark versus an older, older adult who doesn't have children in uh, South Korea, your options are going to be really different. Um, and what kinds of needs do people have as they get older? What are the kind of role of government and policy in terms of trying to promote a supportive environment to try to make um, as positive of an effect on the aging process and um, our mental and physical health um, as we can? Wow. So, Dr. Mary, thank you also for summarizing your research for us as well. And I'm just, my mind is reeling here thinking about all of the different themes that are emerging across these two strands of research and um, the sort of macro and micro sort of aspects of um, how sociolo sociological research in itself um, can lead to so many insights that are vital for communities, um, both at the large scale, the small scale. Um, wow, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> I wish that we had time for, you know, three or four podcast episodes. I think Dr. Wallace, Dr. Mayor, we're going to have to have both of you back on at some point to talk about these research strands um, because I, my interest has certainly peaked and hopefully some listeners who are also interested in sociology, maybe getting involved perhaps in uh, studying sociology at the next level, are also having their interest peaked by this discussion. Um, so we'll have to put a pin in that for now because I want to transition slightly to talking about the Sociology Applied Master's Program, which is the subject of today's episode. Um, and I was wondering if you both wouldn't mind telling me just a little bit about um, uh, the program kind of current highlights, maybe uh, some of the, the the current developments that you see happening in that program from your perspective, obviously, as faculty uh, who are working with students in the program. So the uh, Applied Master's program has been at UMBC for quite some time. It's, it's changed a lot over the years. Um, when Dr. Wallace and I both got here, which was over 10 years ago now, um, it was uh, had a different grad director. Um, some different curriculum. We, we 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 like to adapt the program to the curriculum of the faculty who are here. So mm, there's yeah. been a you know a process of always wanting to every faculty member uh, designs a course, for example, or takes over a course that's in their really close to their area of expertise as an elective. So a student that comes to that program will have the opportunity to take a course specific to the expertise of each of us. Some of us study aging, some of us don't. They study crime and social networks, um, you know, or all different types of topics. So there's a wide variety. Um, and we have some new hires that have some really exciting work looking at um, romantic and sexual behavior at HBCUs and all kinds of different things that are at work, um, both qualitative and quantitative. So we, we hire in mind with keeping sort of a, a real interesting range of methods and topics for our students and then adapting the curriculum to that. One of the main focuses of the program, one of the reasons it's called applied, um, we have a couple different certificates in the program, but we focus in a terminal master's program. One of the goals is to be able to go out and get a job being a sociologist. Sure. Um, and what does that take, right? It, it typically, <laughs> you're, it, it takes a master's very often. Um, you know, the, the the bachelor degree is a bachelor's degree is a nice sort of starting point for a, an overarching sort of experience in sociology. But to really get a career job as a sociologist, we always say the master's degree is sort of the sweet spot of that. The most number of jobs are available at the master's degree, uh, more so than there are at the PhD or the bachelor's level. So it's a really, we really, you know, feel passionately about the program as a as a job placement. Um, 
master's program as well. So the students get training in a couple different things. They could work in nonprofits afterwards. They could work for the government doing data analysis or doing qualitative analysis for any of these types of organizations. So it has a heavy methodological emphasis in terms of quantitative and qualitative training. And it also has a heavy applied emphasis in that we're always talking about policy implications, program development, and that tends to be a focus of the courses. Even if it's a more theoretical elective, their final project needs to be oriented towards identifying policy gaps, identifying potential program solutions to some of the problems that we're discussing. And so that's something that we really try to cultivate in our students for the program. And I, I'll piggyback um, on what Dr. Mayer said um, in, in thinking about, you know, we want our students to get out and get jobs as sociologists, right? But most uh, job openings aren't going to read sociologists needed. Right, right? sure. <laughs> oh, so we equip them with the skills, right? It's about having um, this kind of tool set, uh, toolkit, um, you know, of, of you know, skills um, and, and knowledges that they can use uh, in the, you know, in the profession. Um, so it's, it's that training piece that, that Dr. Mir was talking about that's so important that we try to cultivate. Yeah, and Dr. Wallace, so what kind of methodological skills maybe are you teaching your students in your specialized courses? So in my courses, uh, we are usually looking at uh, DEI. Um, so we do a lot with uh, intersectionality, mm -hmm. um, Black feminist thought. Um, so, you know, some of the other theoretical perspectives that don't necessarily get um, as deeply covered in, for example, theory, the theory course, right? Um, so just equipping uh, students with uh, a way of thinking about um, communities that are often underrepresented in research um, or have been um, historically excluded um, or have been uh, looked at in a way that is uh, pathologized um, so that we center the experiences of marginalized groups so that they go from from margin to center. Um, so with black feminist thought, um, looking at, you know, uh, black women, for example, and centering the experiences of black women, as opposed to this kind of comparative lens, um, where, you know, other groups are used as or majority groups are used as the rule of thumb, right? right. Um, so thinking uh, differently, uh, we like to say, right? Um, so that's one of the ways that I, you know, like to get my students to to thinking about some of these issues mm -hmm. that if you're going to go into the community um, and talk to um, talk to people about their experiences that you um, you know that you are willing to listen and that you are not doing this kind of you know top down approach right that you're really looking at them giving you the knowledge of their experience and then you learning from them um you know based on their insider knowledge of you know of a community that you you know likely don't have you know all the information on so you're trying to gather information um and that you're really listening to um the folks that you say you want to uh learn about wow this sounds like a really valuable take on sort of the qualitative toolkit that is so important across the social sciences and i'm so glad that your students are getting that uh insight so that they'll be able to apply that hopefully to whatever careers they pursue um dr mayor are you involved in qualitative research are there other dimensions that you're mostly uh using in your work or teaching 
I am woefully undertrained in qualitative research. <laughs> Me <and> too. <laughs> problematically overtrained in quantitative. Yeah, research. yeah. I, I, I always, you know, when we have uh, quanti- qualitative scholars on the podcast, I always, you know, think about how, how how interesting and how much fun I would have if I were to have more skills in these methodologies. So maybe I'll audit one of your classes at some point, Doctor Wallace. Um, but it's actually great. Yeah, tell us a bit, a bit about this uh, this quantitative focus. Yeah, well, in sociology, you know, I know different social science disciplines have their varieties. Sociology is really um, a mixture of qualitative and quantitative and and everything in between. That's a heart of the identity of sociology. So it is such a pleasure to be able to be amongst curriculum and faculty that are all trained in these really, really different dynamic ways because we can, it's it's great to be able to train the students in that. Even if we as individuals don't, we don't always get the breadth of it. When we went to school, it wasn't as emphasized. It wasn't required in the same way to have this uh, variety of methodological training. So that's something that we try to offer to our students um, in terms of the program, qualitative and quantitative. So my, my expertise is in, um, uh, publicly available secondary data sets. Um, so that's what we work on primarily in the program is to, and that's not always the case. Uh, we also apply this to what do you do if you're working for a nonprofit and you have a data set and an Excel spreadsheet of their of their clients that you need to analyze? Like, you know, how do you get that into software? How do you get that cleaned up in a way that you can present and, and create some effective presentations and data visualizations for them? Um, so we work on this on, on smaller data sets as well, but one of the goals is to try to show them this breadth of data that might be available already publicly um, in different formats, or if they're already working in a job, they can, you know, if they have the permission of their organization, they can analyze that data, for example, for their projects. Um, so we teach them some of the basics of, you know, de, you know, descriptive univariate and sort of multi-variable analysis so that they feel able to go out there and do this kind of work. Um, one of the things that's great about many of the the data repositories that are available is that they can find data like we show them how to find data on these topics that might be interesting to them and increasingly there's there's secondary publicly available data on really underrepresented groups underrepresented countries so within the last three years finally there's a really great um national representative data set on people who identify as transgender and with lots of detailed questions for them for example which is you know there's always a lag a data lag in terms of what society is doing and what we have available publicly for data so being able to show students how they can go out and find these data sets, how they can download them onto their computer, pull them into the software, start to run statistics on them and be able to make generalizations about the US population or another country or the global population. Um, We really aim to uh, empower them. A lot of students may be intimidated by statistics, maybe intimidated by large data sets, but um, this is something that everybody is able to do and learn. So we show them in a way that that tries to bring it to where they, where their understanding is, where they left off maybe with algebra, right? And and how we move that into syntax and show them how to to do that and, and hopefully make them feel empowered to be social researchers where they can go out and have a question, they can go out and get data on it and find an answer um, when they need to. So that's one of our goals with the with the quantitative training as well. Well, I mean, it's super heartening to think that, you know, these different approaches are sometimes cast, I think, in opposition to one another, at least when you're getting into a grad program and you're thinking about specializing. Um, and it seems from what you're describing that this program does not view those tools as being in any way in opposition and that rather you've really got to have some, you know, deep understanding of, of multiple skill sets like this to be able to function effectively, to answer pressing 
questions about society, right? What we do is actually really hard, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, we do not endorse the, those divisions. I mean, our yeah. department is interdisciplinary. So it's sociology, <laughs> anthropology, and public health. So public health is a little more quantitative, but also some qualitative anthropology, very more qualitative um, mm. kind of emphasis. And so we have all faculty that do all types and do both. <laughs> Um, and that's a big part of what we feel is extremely important in academia. Yeah, and, and students are able to work with sort of multiple faculty members across those distinctions. Is that right? Absolutely. In fact, our uh, qualitative class is, has been taught by um, an anthropologist. Um, well, previously it was taught by uh, Dr. Um, Kevin Eckert. And then after he retired, Dr. Sarah Chard um, took it on. And, and they're both uh, medical anthropologists. So. Um, it's been really wonderful to have them, um, you know, taking, uh, offering those courses. That's fantastic. Uh, I want to ask another question just about the program in general, and that's just sort of about its current trajectory. Um, are there any sort of current developments, uh, things that are happening or maybe happening in the future that you're particularly excited about? Well, we've been adding some new classes with our new hires, so we are excited about that. Um, we have a brand new faculty member, um, Dr. Mercedes Dunn, who is going to be teaching a grad class for the first time, I believe this fall. Uh, we have a retirement and so um, she's stepping into a couple of those slots and then also we'll be preparing a graduate level elective. She's been teaching an undergrad um, elective on body and society, which draws heavily on black feminist theory and thinking about health. And she has her MPH, so her master's in public health and her PhD in sociology. So she has, you know, the whole, a perfect example of kind of what we want to um, have in our program. So she'll be offering some new courses in the coming years. And we're really excited about that. We're also hiring in sociology this fall. Mm, so we'll be yeah. having an additional faculty member um, method methodology methodological focus unknown. Um, we'll have to see what, you know, what the pool looks like, but we'll be having some, some brand new faculty. And we also are always continuing to develop new courses ourselves. That's fantastic. And uh, longtime listeners of the podcast will actually recall an episode that we did a little while back with Dr. Dunn. Uh, it was a delightful conversation. I learned a lot about black feminist theory. And uh, I think that, that those listeners also appreciated uh, certainly getting to, to hear that perspective. Um, and perhaps maybe um, if they're thinking about the Applied Sociology Master's program, they'd be able to get a lot more of those insights as you're describing with this, uh, this new course offering. So um, yeah, thanks for that insight. Um, Obviously, we have a lot more to get to. I want to talk to some of the students and the alums of this uh, current program. So um, we need to, to move on a little bit. But before we do, I wanted to ask both of you if you wouldn't mind just providing us with a few words of advice for students, maybe students who are specifically hoping to go into this program, the Master's in Sociology program, or maybe just advice in general, if you have it, uh, for students who are thinking about uh, taking those next steps into a career in the social sciences. And I see uh, on, on our call here that <laughs> Dr. Mayer has pointed <laughs> at Dr. Wallace, uh, perhaps uh, indicating that uh, Dr. Wallace has been volunteered. So um, I won't I won't put a, um, any pressure on anybody to respond, but um, Dr. Wallace. She has wisdom. Excellent. Yeah, we're grateful for it. <laughs> I, would, I would say uh, be open, mm. um, be open to um, you know, area of interest. Um, you know, there are so many of us here that, um, you know, st study so many different things, but also study similar things in different ways, right? So I think, you know, having an opportunity to, um, 
you know, really get to know your professors uh, is important. Our, our doors are always open um, to meet with you and talk to you about your interests. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what we're here for. Uh, that's what we enjoy doing is, uh, you know, meeting and, and, and guiding uh, in a way. Um, and, you know, but also with, with the idea that, you know, we don't want to, you know, determine what you want to do for you, right? Um, we want to encourage you. Um, and so, you know, being open to, you know, interacting with, with your professors and, um, you know, I think just taking advantage of, um, of, you know, your, your professors, I think is really important because we're here to, we're here for you. We're here for the students. Dr. Wallace, that definitely resonates with me. Um, and I think it's something that's very unique, perhaps, to UMBC. Um, you know, obviously, we're a, a state school, a fairly large campus at this point. Um, but I really have found, especially in the social sciences, that there are so many faculty just around uh, the, the, the programs, uh, variously in the public policy building here, um, that seem like they really do enjoy that dimension of their jobs to just interact with students in that way, to have that, that sort of open door. Um, and I think it's a really unique thing about our campus that we can be sort of this larger kind of, uh, you know, regional university with this focus on bringing in, you know, a, a large number of students into our classes, but uh, still have that that point of contact. And so that definitely resonates with me as perhaps unique, um, maybe not just to this program, but also to, to the campus as a whole. Um, but Dr. Mary, do you have any other advice, ways to build on what uh, Dr. Wallace said? Besides admiring all of her catchphrases, no, I, I would say that um, maybe one of the things that we often tell them when they get here is they get really intimidated. Like, I don't know how to mm. write a research paper. I don't know how to do a master's project. And we remind them, you've never done one before. Sure. That's because you've never done one. <laughs> like, you're here to learn. We're here to help you. So it, it's always like, you don't want to look at the top of the mountain when you start up the trail. So, you know, just worry about one path at a time and you'll make it there. Um, and we have people here that are here to guide them through how to write the questions and how to think everything through. Um, and the goal is that you'll learn how to do that by the end, that you don't come here knowing how to do that or knowing exactly what you want to study. And that's 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 good. That's actually the point. That's why you're getting the degree to learn that. So fantastic perspective. And certainly for those who are looking forward to maybe starting those first steps of the journey, uh, that'll be heartening to them as they consider applying to this program. Um, Dr. Wallace, Dr. Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, I really enjoyed learning about the program and about, as I said before, your own research strands. I'm really excited, hopefully, to have both of you back on at some point to talk about those things. Um, but for now, we'll have to let you go because we're going to hear from some of these great students and alums. So, But again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with UMBC MA students R.B. Brower and Jayla Gray-Thomas, as well as Applied Sociology alumni Faria Khalid and Perry Gilchrist. Great. So obviously we've got a ton of folks on the call here, so it's uh, uh, I'll be directing traffic a little bit in this episode. Uh, but I want to start um, with the current students and just ask you a little bit about yourselves, maybe get a chance to introduce uh, some of the things that you're working on in the program. Again, to get our listeners a little bit of a flavor of what's going on in this particular program. So I'm going to start uh, just sort of randomly uh, pulling a name out of the hat here. Um, R.B. Brower, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, about your research interests in the field, and maybe what sparked some of those interests. 
Yeah, um, I'm RB. I use they, them pronouns. Uh, I am in my first year, second semester of the Applied Master's program. Um, I'm interested in uh, social support for transgender and non-binary adult and older adult populations, specifically uh, which people are supportive in their lives and how, since trans and non-binary people often face um, like hostility and rejection from their families of origin. And they're also perceived by others as less desirable dating partners. Um, so right now I'm doing a qualitative project on identity and social support for non-binary people exclusively. So my participants are anyone who would consider themselves to fall under the non-binary umbrella. Um, yeah, uh, well, I guess to boil it down to a topic with an applied sociology that interests me, I'd say gender, mental health, and the life course. Wow, that's really fascinating. I think extremely topical, extremely relevant research. Um, I want to ask a little bit about where you are in the process here. So have you contacted participants already? Are you in the, in the midst of uh, sort of gathering that data? Um, where are you in, in the, the process now of that research? Yeah, so right now um, I've interviewed five people for my project. Um, I'm currently working on coding and analysis. Uh, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> and what's next for me is to do my master's paper. Um, I have two things up in the air for that, but I, it's possible that I'm going to re-interview the people that I interviewed for this project and uh, do another analysis. Excellent. Well, yeah, that that process of coding, that you know, that deep, uh, sort of lengthy process, is certainly a very important step of the research, if not a very difficult one. So, I uh, definitely appreciate you ha being here and taking the time to talk to us today, uh, given obviously the fact that you're quite busy with all of that. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Excellent. So uh, moving right along, I want to introduce uh, Jayla Gray-Thomas. If you wouldn't mind, Jayla, just telling us a little bit about your research interests uh, and sort of where you are in the program and kind of the current steps of your research as well. Okay, so uh, thank you again for having me. Um, I'm in my second year, actually my last semester of the program. Um, I would say that health and illness have always kind of held my focus throughout my education. Starting out, I was kind of intending on uh, entering the medical field. But once I realized that wasn't really uh, what I was passionate about, it kind of naturally transitioned into medical sociology, more so being my um, research interest primarily. Um, and so my interest in this area kind of spans many corners of this very um, broad, broad sub-discipline. Uh, so things like the social construction of illness and diagnosis, um, trying to understand factors that shape the doctor-patient relationship or uh, trying to learn from and contribute to the wealth of knowledge on the social determinants of health are all things that I'm really interested in. Um, so currently for my capstone paper, I'm conducting a mixed methods content analysis of American medical schools in order to evaluate the degree to which and the methods they've employed to incorporate social medicine into their curriculum with social medicine being a conceptualization of illness that recognizes social forces and conditions as antecedents to illness in addition to the more commonly understood biological or genetic etiologies of illness and disease. And so using information that's made available online to prospective students by these institutions, um, hope to better understand what American medical schools are doing to promote health equity through a greater understanding of the social determinants of health. 
Wow, that's really fascinating. I, I think that's it's incredibly interesting to um, investigate this nexus, specifically using the kind of content analysis that you are at this uh, particular data collection. So, so tell me again a little bit about how you're getting this data. So you're going to these websites, I guess, and then sort of searching for the relevant uh, texts that I guess prospective students would see? Yeah, so I've kind of developed my coding sheet in regard to the primary uh, terms involving or surrounding social medicine and seeing what about that is available or um, is declared by these institutions and kind of looking at how the language that they use surrounding it and how it is uh, incorporated within their curriculum. So not only just looking at whether they teach students the social determinants of health, but is it an elective course or is it integrated within the curriculum itself? Um, and so starting out, it was a quant or it is a quantitative content analysis of a sample of medical schools, um, just looking more broadly at what is just immediately available to anyone maybe considering attending. Um, and then in a smaller subsample, I'll be doing a more qualitative, in-depth uh, thematic analysis to kind of get a better idea of those more uh, nuanced kind of understandings of what their their incorporation of social medicine. Wow, Jayla, that really sounds like an incredible project. It sounds like you've got a lot of richness of uh, data to bring to bear here. And certainly, I also want to thank you for your time availability as well, because it sounds like you're very busy with that project as well. Um, this is really awesome. It sounds like we've got uh, some really cool projects, very different projects, but obviously some uh, core similarities here in terms of uh, approach um, from this master's program. But of course, we don't just have uh, current students on this panel. We also have a couple of recent alumni uh, that I want to bring in as well. So um, if you wouldn't mind, um, Perry Gilchrist is here. Um, Perry, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit uh, about your journey sort of from the Applied Sociology uh, program uh, to where you are currently today. Um, well, I finished the Applied Sociology program back in um, 2001, which um, I was supposed to be in person, but um, I did most of my program online because of COVID. Sure. Um, when I was at UMBC, um, I did work as a research assistant on, on STEM Build, which is a project in the psych department. And then um, pretty soon after graduation, I actually started working at Westat, which is the company that I'm working at now. So I've been there for almost about two years. Um, the project I work on is PIAC, or the Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies, um, which is a household study. It is an international study. Um, we um, um, are interested in adult skills in the population, um, and that's a study I've been working on since I started there. Um, my background's always been in educational research. Um, Actually, my interest when I was in grad school was in gender and sexuality, but um, I feel like the universe is kind of pulling me in this educational direction. And that's what I've been doing since I've been out of grad school. That's fantastic. And, you know, I think that you can certainly argue that there are some very important points of, uh, of, of sort of uh, continuity there between these topics that you initially sort of developed interest in and education as this field. Um, I, you know, you don't need to look around uh, much to the political sphere today to, to to think about the fact that these things are becoming increasingly salient. So uh, there's definitely some very important overlap there. And um, if you wouldn't mind telling me just as a sort of follow-up question, um, do you feel like there's any specific aspects of the UMBC program that you think prepared you, especially for doing the kind of work that you're doing today? 
Um, well, definitely any kind of analysis work. Like, I feel like obviously, like, SAS is a skill that just keeps on giving. With um, also, like, qual- I feel like you can never go wrong with any kind of qualitative training you've had. Sure. Um, particularly now, um, I'm in more of a survey operations kind of role. So I've been actively, um, actually training a lot of field staff. So the qualitative, um, uh, experience that I got at, um, during the program, um, definitely are really helping me out, um, specifically right now in the role that I'm in. Awesome. Well, it sounds like a lot of those, um, skills that you, you're speaking about, um, a lot of our current students are also taking advantage of some of that, uh, technical training to be able to hopefully use that on the job market very soon. Um, Obviously, we have one more uh, member of our panel here that I want to bring in as well, uh, and that is Farhia Khalid. Uh, Farhia, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about your journey from the uh, the program all the way to your current position. Sure thing. Uh, my name is Farhia, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, and currently, I'm working at the uh, the United States House of Representatives. Uh, uh, the particular office that I'm working in is the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. I work as the junior research and data analyst there. Uh, I'm also currently a UMBC student, so I'm upstairs in public policy, uh, just uh, trying to <laughs> get my doctoral degree as well. So uh, those are the two roles that I'm particularly in right now that have uh, that are built upon what I have learned from the MA program. Um, so those are the, the the two things that keep me busy apart from other other family obligations. It sounds like you're busy indeed. And again, I want to also thank you as well as Perry for your time uh, for participating in the panel uh, today, because I mean, that's certainly a very heavy load to think about uh, sort of coincidentally doing a PhD at the same time as, you know, working for, for Congress, which is probably a pretty, a pretty intensive sort of uh, operation as well. Um, so yeah, that's really awesome. So I want to ask the same question that I asked uh, Perry. Um, do you feel like there is any specific uh, sort of training or aspects in the program that you think has uh, especially prepared you to do some of the stuff that you're doing? Obviously, the academic side a little notwithstanding, given the fact that, um, you know, it's all sort of leading towards uh, a PhD research project. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, before before I comment further, I do want to mention that uh, since I'm, I'm an employee at Congress, I have to mention that uh, what I'm sharing are going to be my opinions and not necessarily the opinions of my authors or, Excellent. or the Congress <laughs> As so, a political uh, scientist, yeah, I can definitely appreciate a disclaimer of that nature. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would say, I mean, it may sound cliche, but I would say everything so far has helped me, and uh, and I I fell in the I fell in love with the MA program because of the fact that it not only prepares um, us with with the methods and the tools that we would need in our career further on, especially in research, uh, but also the kind of substance that's that's uh, discussed in in this program. Um, I mean, from discussing how how systemic inequalities are embedded uh, in 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 many things around us, how how we have constructed these social realities that affect the life um, and consequences, life consequences of people. Uh, the whole domain of social determinants of health is so important and it it spills over to other aspects of of um, policy and lives of people all of that has i think informed us and trained us to to be to to contribute in a in a more holistic way so not just having our numbers pulled together or just our data coded but also to be able to communicate that and how it impacts 
people and lives of people. So I think that that was the the the, the beauty of this program that we we get the 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 understanding of what the numbers that we're generating or the cores that we're generating. What do they really really mean? What do they really mean? Yeah, I think that's an incredibly well put uh, sort of argument for training of this nature. And I think you've also uh, a little bit foreshadowed a question that I'm about to ask, which is a question that's for the whole panel. I want to open it up a little bit now that we've gotten a chance to hear a little bit about what all of you are working on. Um, let's think about some of the aspects of the program that you think are especially uh, effective that, that you found uh, to be good experiences, perhaps, in your time at UMBC. Um, obviously, for you, we've got this idea of the sort of um, intensely applied or intensely uh, sort of uh, uh, useful nature of the approach here. But are there other things that you think are especially useful? And again, this is a question for anyone. Um, whoever wants to, to answer, please feel free. I'll go I would say um, one thing. Oh, I'm sorry. It's oh. fine. I would ahead. say one thing that I felt was really effective when I was there was um, we. I took a community um, research course. And when we were in it, we had to um, divide up our work. Like we um, just had tasks that we um, had to complete every week. And we just had, um, we were put into teams and we had to um, basically delegate each other's work. And I feel like being in research, um, that class was really helpful because research, you're never flying solo. So a lot of research is um, learning how to work in teams, dividing up work, delegating work based on strengths and weaknesses. So I feel like that was really beneficial for me now actually being in research and seeing like, okay, like this is like, you know, I guess you're almost like kind of in a real life situation when you're in a course like that. Yeah, I definitely agree that I think research in the social sciences in general is moving towards more of this sort of collaborative model. Um, and it's a little bit artificial to think about you going off and doing all your research solo as kind of these capstone projects or a PhD dissertation, when in reality, regardless of where you're working, either in the academic context or um, some kind of applied or basic research context, I mean, really, no matter what you're doing, it's going to be in some kind of collaborative environment. So it's really cool to hear that that's a feature of the program. Um, anybody else? Uh, other Other ideas building on this? Sure. Um, I was just going to say, and it is similar to what Perry was talking about, but we get a lot of kind of low stakes opportunities to build the skills that we're going to need once we leave the program. So just going on or off of that collaborative um, kind of learning opportunities that you'll have, you also get the opportunity to lead discussions within a lot of the courses here or present the research that you spend an entire semester working on. And like things like that, I found very beneficial. Um, just this, the beginning of the semester, I presented at my first conference. And as nervous as I was, I felt really uh, prepared doing that just based on the multiple times that I've had to do so within my courses. And so, um, and you also get a lot of support from the people around you, whether it be the students or the faculty themselves. And so, um, yeah, you, you definitely get a lot of preparation for the work that you're gonna do once you leave the program. That's great. Jayla, congratulations, first of all, on the conference presentation. I know how much trepidation that can come with. And so it's awesome to, to think that you were able to hit the ground running and feel really prepared uh, for that on the basis of your experience. Um, and I think RB was also <laughs> sort of uh, intimating, obviously, through a visual medium uh, that, that that was a, a good job um, or something of the sort. What do you think? Um, I I was there uh, to, to see Jayla in action and 
she just did an amazing job. And I do agree that there are lots of like practical opportunities in our program to, to get a sense of your skills. Uh, and low stakes is just an incredible way to put it. Um, not just leading discussions and giving presentations, but also lots of peer review opportunities, which I think is also speaking to Perry's point about working collaboratively, collaboratively as a team. Um, every class that I've taken, there's been like at least one or two weeks in the semester where we bring our work to class and we spend an, an hour or more uh, sharing with peers and giving our feedback uh, based on, you know, either what we've learned so far or based on uh, rubric or criteria that our professors have given. Wow. Well, obviously, I think one thing that I'm taking away from this discussion is the incredible uh, quality also of the students, <laughs> perhaps, that are coming through this program. Um, and in, in some sense, the proof of it is in the pudding in terms of uh, the kinds of things that they're now doing after the program as well, in terms of these alumni. Um, and so I also want to think a little bit about the um, possibility that new students might be hearing this podcast, might be thinking about uh, potentially taking on a program of this nature. Um, I want to ask if you all had any advice for students who might be uh, mulling this over, thinking about whether they should uh, take this dive and, and enroll in a program of this nature. Um, any words of advice for prospective students? Sounds like, um, yeah, RB wants to say something? Yeah, I, I didn't know if someone else was going to start talking, but yeah, um, I think that uh, what's been really important to me uh, that I would like, or that I would hope other students or prospective students would consider is to be curious and willing to consider topics of study that they wouldn't have normally chosen. The only reason why I was interested in the topic that that I inevitably chose was from reading something in Dr. Smith's class on mental health and illness. I mean, I, I could truly be interested in any topic. Um, so I had tons of ideas about what might be fun. But you know, when I was doing this reading on social support, I was like, you mean if people love you and are there for you, you have a better life that's like empirically backed up and it's not just a feeling. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that definitely took me into wanting to explore it more. So I think if you if prospective students like believe that you can find cool information anywhere, um, then they can succeed. And the faculty in this department have like a tremendous desire to nurture student interest, um, whether it aligns with their personal interests or not. So I think it's also important to talk to faculty. Yeah, that's fantastic insight. I mean, I, I think one thing as a faculty member that makes me excited is when a student really breaks away from some of the material that I've offered and said, yeah, but why don't we think about this from a different direction and, and, and want to investigate uh, something that's maybe orthogonal to my own interests? Because that to me is a sign that the student is really starting to cultivate their own exciting interests. And I love that too, because I get to learn something. And I think that's probably uh, more or less uh, the, the same, same attitude of many of the faculty that you're talking about, um, knowing some of them uh, personally. Uh, that's really awesome. Um, anyone else? Uh, words of advice for prospective students? So uh, I, I completely second what RB, RB has experienced and is, has mentioned uh, because, uh, and again, that's probably is also one of my favorite parts, was one of my favorite parts of the program is the, the support that we get from the faculty, um, especially the fact that I guess maybe there are, there are, there's, they're studying human beings and human systems so much that they do understand that uh, at the end of the day, we're also human beings and they they are completely there for us to 
to support us uh, throughout the process and independent research or being a PI on a research can be intimidating from like the onset of the, the IRB process <laughs> to collecting data and then reporting data, all of that. Uh, but but the faculty has, has they, they support you throughout the process. Uh, and so the one thing that, the, the one advice that I would uh, give to students, current and current and future students would be uh, to to not be intimidated by by the process or by and even entering uh, um, the program. Um, and the other thing that I would say is, yeah, normalize curiosity. Just normalize the fact that you may not have a specialization or you may not have like a the research topic already prepared for yourself. Uh, but be open to learning and be open to exploring uh, what uh, what you are being taught from different avenues. I think those are great insights, Priya. I have sort of two two reactions. First of all, is that as a member of UMBC's IRB, I can say that I can sometimes uh, uh, understand why people would see that process with a lot of trepidation, but. Don't worry, <laughs> we are trained professionals in the IRB and we'll make sure that your study gets um, expert care and attention and a quick review as well. Um, but I, you know, I also think that it, it, it really does speak to the fact that it's unfortunately not always the case that faculty at programs are really thinking about students as people, um, as you as you describe. And I'm fortunate to have gone through a, a number of programs in my academic experience where I have benefited from that. Um, but I will say that UMBC, I think, is a high outlier on that sort of variable. And I've heard horror stories about <laughs> about this um, across the disciplines and other places. Um, you know, much much to to my chagrin. Um, but really, I, I think that I I agree with you entirely that um, there is something about this this institution that I think uh, sort of breeds this this sense of of personability uh, more so than others. But um, yeah, that's an awesome um, word of advice as well. Thank you. Um, I think I saw Jayla also wanted to, to say something. Yeah, just to put it briefly, because it's kind of just a reiteration of what RB and Priya said, but. Um, Beyond just curiosity regarding the topics that you may explore, I, I was just going to add that being open to exploring uh, research methods that you aren't necessarily comfortable with um, or are familiar with, it's just such an important part of the toolkit that's going to set us apart post-graduation that I think um, I, that's what I feel like I've personally benefited the most from. I feel like I've shifted from the mindset of being a sociology major to feeling like a sociologist in that I've had the opportunity to explore and um, build build my skill in a, in a variety of research methods. Um, and so I feel more equipped and prepped for anything that I do once I leave the program. That's really well said. I love that idea of sort of becoming professionalized in that nature and finding your voice as a sociologist uh, through this through this process. That's fantastic. Um, Perry, maybe we'll leave you with the last word here. Any any uh, last words of advice here for uh, students who might be thinking about a program of this nature? Um, basically, just kind of reiterating what everyone else said. Um, don't be afraid to explore topics that you necessarily didn't, or I guess you didn't necessarily think that you were interested in. Be um, I will say, um, like, I feel like I have a base toolkit that I got from the program and I can pretty much do any kind of research um, with the, like this base knowledge that I have. Um, right now, like I said, I'm working on PIAC, but then in the fall, I'm probably gonna be working on a um, childhood longitudinal study. So basically, which is not the kind of study that I've worked on before, but because I have like this base knowledge from the program, you know, 
I can pretty much do anything. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, thank you all so much for agreeing to take part in this brief roundtable. I wish that we had the time to talk to you all a little bit more about your projects because they sound uh, fascinating. Um, Perry and Freya, it sounds like you're both doing really, really cool work, and I want to hear more about that as well. Um, I've got I've got to go. Unfortunately, this is all the time we have today. Um, but uh, hopefully, we'll be able to catch up with all of you at some point again on another episode of Retrieving the Social Sciences. Um, and again, I want to thank all of you so much for your time and for sharing some of these uh, thoughts with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion of the Applied Sociology MA program. Check the show notes for more information, and be sure to reach out to the program at sociologyma at umbc.edu if you'd like to learn more. And next time you're at a baseball game, don't forget to do some people watching. And as always, keep questioning. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Mallinson, our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno, and our production intern is Alex Andrews. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Dewan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent CS3 events. Until next time, keep questioning.